0: This is episode 216 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Liver Tissue Development and Engineering, Dr. David Hay. Hello, everyone. We are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We are very excited to announce that not only will Arun and I be at the upcoming ISSCR annual meeting taking place in San Francisco, from June 15th to the 18th, but the entire Stem Cell Podcast team will be there as well, that's right. If you're attending the meeting, drop by the exhibitor hall to find the Stem Cell Podcast booth and learn how you can be featured on a future episode. We really can't wait, have been looking forward to this for like two plus years. Today, we have Dr. David Hay from the University of Edinburgh on the podcast to talk about his research, finding novel ways to produce liver tissue from pluripotent stem cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem
1: cell news coming right up. But first, the stem selfie contest is back. Enter your best cell image by April 28th for a chance to win a stem selfie prize package, which includes a magnetic puzzle of your image. Visit www.stemcell.com slash selfie. that's S-T-E-M-C-L-L-F-I-E 2022, to find out more about the contest and to enter. And don't forget, the voting starts on May 2nd. Wow, that
0: is really big news. The STEM Selfie contest <laughs> is back. I love the STEM Selfie contest, but I got bigger news than that, Arun. This is a, a bombshell. Um, and so fundamental to all of our work in the stem cell field. We're talking about chemical reprogramming, okay? You know, reprogramming in the foundational study, seminal work by Yamanaka, I mean, it really kicked open the door for pluripotent stem cell research and therapeutic application. But ultimately, you've always had to use cellular factors. I mean, transcription factors in the most case, early days, it was delivered by virus and then more uh, methods that were more amenable to, to translation were developed. But nevertheless, we've also always had to, de- to deliver transcription factors or like O plasm or something um, in order to affect that reprogramming. Um, although, you know, it, it was almost a decade ago now, uh, when Work led by Hong Qiu Deng, who uh, is at Peking University in China, showed that you could use chemical reprogramming, that you could use chemical stimulation in mouse somatic cells to generate pluripotent stem cells um, with an elaborate protocol and a cocktail and all that. But it's, nevertheless, they could do it, and uh, it was a big deal. And this approach was extended even to uh, lineage direct lineage conversion by Deng's group. Um, and others, as well as Shangdang at UCSD. Um, but none of these approaches were able to be translated to h- induce human pluripotent stem cells from somatic cells. And uh, I think a lot of people attributed that to the fact that human somatic cells have evolved to be uh, have a more stable epigenic, epigenetic landscape. Um, so uh, it, they were more resistant, so to speak. Uh, but the idea never, it, it was still there. And in the mouse, they showed that it could work. So it was reason that there was perhaps a more plastic state that existed in other animals or in other cell lines under different conditions. And so Deng's group here hypothesized that they could recreate that plastic state in human cells and affect that chemical reprogramming. And this is work, it's no wonder that it's taken almost a decade since this work was first shown in mouse before it was translated to human, because this must've been a monumental amount of work. And it shows in this manuscript, which has eight co-first authors and three corresponding authors. And what they were able to do was create this intermediate plastic state in human cells um first they did it with fetal fibroblasts but ultimately were able to do with adult dermal fibroblasts as well and by creating this intermediate plastic state uh, notably by inhibition of the junk pathway uh, they were able to create cells that exhibited key features of embryonic stem cells and that was you know transcriptomic analysis they looked like pluripotent cells the epigenetic bisulfite sequencing they were a match teratomas that generated all three germ layers They went on to do single cell RNA sequencing during the reprogramming process to kind of map it. And ultimately, I thought this was the real kicker, uh, is that they then mechanistically kind of unpacked it and showed using axolotl, frog and mouse, that these this intermediate plastic state looked more like the axolotl program following limb injury than what you saw in frog and mouse limb injury and you know axolotl famously famously is able to regenerate limbs um so th- this was really I thought the 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 capstone of this study was showing that bit of mechanism showing that it, it was akin to this Quote unquote lower, although I would say more glorious, organism that's capable of regeneration. And that's the kicker here. I mean, not just laying the foundation for generating pluripotent stem cells with a chemical cocktail from human, adult human dermal cells, which, you know, sky's the limit there. But I think maybe even planting the seed that chemical reprogramming could be modulated at some level to affect a kind of regenerative process like what we see in axolotl, and that really blew my mind here. I think we've been so focused for all this time about chemical reprogramming to get pluripotent stem cells, but now reading this, I'm envisioning a future where you just have chemical, refined chemical cocktails that allow you to de-differentiate to a more plastic state and then directly differentiate towards specialized tissues, well cells, perhaps someday tissues and even organs. So I, I think it's a really exciting piece of work that's been a long time coming. And I would say next to you know, Yamanaka and induced pluripotency, um, this and, and similar work done, done by Deng over the last decade is, is such a critical addition to, to the tool set that we have.
1: Yeah, this is a tremendous story. And really all the stories that we're gonna cover on this week's roundup are, really top notch. This is one of those roundups where you want to really just listen to every single story very carefully, because these are very high profile papers that we're covering today. But in this particular story, yes, I mean, this is a, a tremendous amount of work over many years of basic science, many years of screening to find the right cocktail of compounds that would be able to induce chemical reprogramming in human cells um certainly there's a huge amount of high throughput screening that was done here just looking at the methodology and different looking at the cocktail that they actually ultimately used it's it's complex this was definitely not an easy thing to find it's not like you're just looking at one single small molecule that's gonna induce the the process of reprogramming this actually kind of reminds me of our chat with Alias singach who's also doing kind of similar work when it comes to finding a cocktails of small molecules that can enhance cell survival in in their lab's case this is even more complex than the the cocktail that they described because for reprogramming as we know it's a multi-step process i mean if you look at the methods in this particular paper you have to prepare media for four different stages of induction right and each of those stages has a slightly different cocktail of, of, of small molecules that you're using um it's it's a huge amount of work here i will say one thing though small molecules of course as we know during our differentiations that we use them in they're cheap and they're effective in a lot of situations but they are they can be somewhat dirty right so they have some of these off-target impacts off-target effects i don't know if they characterize those in depth right this is certainly non-integrating when it comes to the the genome and you're not using any sort of viral mediated reprogramming here but small molecules will have their own caveats too right yeah that's a great
0: point i mean both your points there which is that the complexity of this and you know i I would say i'm kind of heartened to see that or it's a bit of a relief right because you would imagine that if it were a simple cocktail that you would have this plasticity or de-differentiation happening at a at a higher level maybe in endogenous tissues leading to some kind of cancers or what have you so i'm not surprised and that it would take a lot to override this program cells don't want to drift uh once they're set but um, yeah, uh, on the other point, I would say it's, it's also true that the idea of just applying these, I, I wouldn't even see willy-nilly, but even applying them in a very targeted way, there's probably uh, more than a few unknown unknowns in terms of what kind of off-target influence that that compound would have, even in the, the cells you're targeting. You know, uh, not, Notwithstanding the the result that you want, that different, de-differentiation entrance into plasticity and perhaps directed to another fate, there may also be other other effects that uh, you would worry about short or long term so something that we have to really pay close attention to but you know i'm sure you would agree Arun, uh just a, a breakthrough. Uh, conceptually technically and the 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 fruit of a lot of Labor, so I really appreciate the efforts by all the scientists and and those who came before
1: making this come to fruition. Absolutely. Tremendous, tremendous work. And, you know, really a, a, a labor of love in a lot of ways over many years of, of painstaking screening and all that good stuff. Right. So hopefully the next step is being able to adopt this, adopt this, these cocktails, this technology for everyday reprogramming. Well, we'll see what happens. Moving on to uh, another really high profile paper that's a bit different. This is a, a basic science study, but it's also a tremendously high profile study in, in nature. The, the title of this one is Somatic Mutation Rates Scale with Lifespan Across Mammals. And this is mostly an aging related story. There is a stem cell element to it that I'll, I'll get to. This is coming from the, the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Uh, last author here is Inigo Martin Corena. And uh, there's quite a quite a few authors on this paper, but first author is Alex Kagan. This is like this is this is a beautiful basic science study. It's a comparative evolutionary biology story. It's really the first study to compare mutations across a bunch of different animal species. That's answering a really a basic fundamental question about aging and cancer, right? The in a nutshell, why aren't bigger animals, say like the elephant or animals that are able to live longer, why don't they necessarily have a, a higher propensity to develop cancer? This is something that's puzzled uh, a lot of folks over the years. In fact, this is the basic fundamental principle of what's called Pito's paradox, which I actually didn't know about prior to this. Um, it's a paradox where bigger animals or animals that live longer, don't necessarily have a higher propensity to develop cancer. Intuitively, it would make sense if they were more inclined to develop cancer, right? If there's more cells and there's more time for those cells to accumulate mutations, then perhaps there's a higher chance of those animals developing cancer, the the ones that are older or bigger, but that's just not the case, right? so they're trying to get to the the bottom of this and what they did is they actually analyzed genomes from different species of mammals all sorts of mammals from mice to giraffes small ones big ones and they confirmed that really the the longer the lifespan of the species the the slower the rate at which the mutations occur so it's a it's a really cool discovery so it doesn't matter how old the animal ultimately becomes on average the number of somatic mutations that are accumulated over that lifespan is the same. It's just the rate of the mutation occurring in the animal that's changing. So for example, if there's an animal that only lives a very short amount of time, like a, like a mouse, it's overall mutational rate, Somatic mutation rate is much higher than an animal such as like a human that lives for 80 plus years. Overall, our mutation accumulation rate is slower and they are able to, uh, basically figured this out using, and here's the stem cell angle, using intestinal crypts, okay? So basically they they compare the intestinal crypts from uh, different animals, different mammals. Uh, they're able to measure the mutation rates in single intestinal stem cells, right? It doesn't, the, the thing that it doesn't answer this particular story, it doesn't answer the question about body mass. Why is it that larger animals are not necessarily inclined to develop higher amounts of cancer uh, that's something that this study doesn't answer but it does help to answer that uh, the lifespan question okay um, so really a beautiful basic science study a lot of sequencing here a lot of uh, uh, fundamental biology a lot of evolutionary biology comparative biology to, to answer this really fundamental question in, in aging yeah I,
0: it's so I'm just like touched emotionally when I when I read a study like this, because it just reminds me that the beauty of nature and how these harmonious equilibria uh, just arise out of the system. You know, it, it's it's lifespan now. Add this to the to the catalog, you know, lifespan and sexual reproduction and all these factors that have to be balanced to maintain a species. They all work in concert and and this it's interesting to see now this this kind of genetic or mutational angle. um the other thing that I'm wondering about this is, as you said, it doesn't address the the question of body mass, but for me, it also what comes to mind is the mechanism right It's nice to see that these relationships work, but how do the different species mediate that differential mutational rate and I, I know in elephants at least because you know the the most massive, the most famously studied. Um, it's known that they have twenty copies of p fifty three. So there, you can kind of surmise, yeah, maybe that's how elephants are have have evolutionarily been able to modulate their mutational rate. But I, I'd be really interested to see uh, similar analyses of all the you know DNA repair and tumor suppressor genes, how they are represented across the gamut of all these species, just so we could get a peek at maybe how mechanistically. Uh, the the gene expression is able to mediate this kind of balance that you see.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great that you brought up the the elephant point. I mean, that's probably the most famous example of how a large animal that's able to live for a long time perhaps is able to protect itself from developing cancer phenotypes. You know, the 20 copies of P53 in the the case of the elephant, a number of which are actually active, by the way. Um, But then there's other Animals, other species that are also have these unique mechanisms. There's the the naked mole rat, really famously, which is uh, also I don't believe it's able to develop cancer and it's able to live a significant amount of time. So I think there are it, it perhaps is not as clear cut. Um, as you might think, maybe different species have independently evolved different mechanisms to protect themselves against different cancer phenotypes. And then the other part of this is, you know, this is the this is focusing just on mammalian species, right? So it'd be really cool to see in plants or invertebrates or whatnot, you know, what sort of unique mechanisms do those species and those organisms have to protect themselves against cancer? It's uh, just a, a beautiful reflection on the diversity of the evolutionary tree, don't you think? Absolutely.
0: I love diversity. Speaking of large and small, all animals, large and small, you know, they have a lot of uh, variation, but really it all comes down to one cell, Arun. It's one cell to rule them all. And that is the hematopoietic stem cell, because no matter your size, just one cell can create your entire hematopoietic system. That's in mammals, at least. I don't know about the plants. You're wandering into plants, Arun. I want you to come back to me. We're talking about (laughs) mammals here. Um, but you know, hematopoiesis, as glorious as it as it is, and the potential of one cell to generate the entire hematopoietic tree, uh, perhaps owing to that tremendous capacity, it's poorly understood how it works out. Uh, we know that developmental hematopoiesis consists of multiple waves, um, and ultimately culminates in the generation of these self-renewing hematopoietic stem cells that you find in the bone marrow. Uh, and we know that these cells emerge, at least in humans, in the aorta gonad mesonephros region. Um, and although that region contains a numerous hemogenic cells, these endothelial precursor of hematopoietic cells, the a transplantable hematopoietic stem cell, something that it will repopulate, is very rare. There's about one, it's been calculated, a single one of these po- powerful cells per AGM, okay? Um, and that suggests that somewhere in between their migration from the AGM to other sites, they undergo a, a, a maturation process that, that creates a, the capacity for this engraftment and, and differentiation potential. Uh, where they go from the AGM is varied. They go to the liver uh, and there they, they have the fetal liver. There they, they acquire this uh, ability to engraft the bone marrow. And then ultimately they go to the bone marrow Um, but we haven't been able to recapitulate all stages of this in vitro or been able to observe them all in vivo. Um, And although the establishment of of hematopoietic stem cells is known in the fetal liver, there's multiple progenitor waves that lead up to that, first in the yolk sac, then in the fetal liver, um, ultimately, as I said, in the bone marrow, but there's all these other sites too. You know, yolk sac, placenta, even in major arteries, in the head, in the heart, Arun, there's a site of, of hematopoietic stem cell dissemination. Um, so the contribution of, of, of all these sites to the establishment and development of hematopoietic stem cells is not known, particularly in humans, because it's not an accessible model, right? And the key here, it's thought, and one major reason why we aren't able to track these is because we don't have... Good labels. We don't have the ability to distinguish between bona fide established hematopoietic stem cells and their immediate progenitors. Okay. So enter Hannah McColl, who's a, a real goddess of the hematopoietic stem cell field and has made a lot of seminal contributions. Also, many collaborators on this as well that I won't mention, but have a look at the paper. This is a real dream team um, who unpacked the progression of. A hemogenic endothelium to transplantable hematopoietic stem cells. Also visualize this using spatial transcriptomics. And what they ultimately found is that there's this hematopoietic stem cell signature. And I'm going to say it because it's really important. RUNX1 positive, hox a 9 positive, MML, MLLT3 positive, MECOM positive, HLF positive, SPINC2 positive. Half of those things no one ever has thought about. In the hematopoietic field so this is a really novel marker that distinguishes hematopoietic stem cells from their progenitors uh, throughout gestation and they also showed the th- transition of these stem cells to the liver is marked by a molecular shift where they take on these more canonical maturation markers including cd-133 and hladr uh, and they also tracked the origin of the hematopoietic cells to these specific hemogenic endothelium, uh, ALDH1A1 positive, KCNK17 positive hemogenic endothelial cell, and then show that those cells came from a precursor that was an arterial endothelial subset identified by IL-33 and ALD1H1, ALDH1A1 positive. Finally, they go into a pluripotent stem cell system and generate what they call correlates of of these cell types, Um, although they do acknowledge that there are some discrepancies between the pluripotent stem cell derived putative hemogenic precursor and and derivatives. Um, But nevertheless, I mean, I cannot overstate how important a study this is because we've identified our, McCullough's group and her colleagues, they've identified these landmarks, these milestones Um, that are clear phenotypic indicators of all the steps along the path. And I think now it's just a matter of trying to fish out these cells and generate mouse reporters, et cetera, so that we can really uh, observe uh, and and experiment with them. And that's what I'm waiting to see here. All the uh, transplantation studies that should follow from this, both. In the mouse system as well as taking these human cells maybe from aborted fetal tissue and seeing how they'll repopulate uh, nsg or immunocompromised mice so I, there's so many studies that i can't wait to see coming out of this i just want to get into a pluripotent stem cell system right now and mess around with some of these markers and see if i can fish out a pluripotent or a hematopoietic uh, precursor because you know I I really, I suffered under the yoke of my efforts to make hematopoietic cells. And I I would like to give it another shot. That's my great dream.
1: When I told you about this paper, I saw you salivating about it. You're just so excited to, to cover this one. And really this roundup is next level, man. It's probably top three roundups I've ever done while I've been on this podcast in the last couple of years. Every single paper we're covering here is just big, big news. And this is no exception. I mean, you can just think about the applications for the discoveries that they're finding here. And the the thing I love about this is this helps explain perhaps why we're not able to generate those bona fide HSCs, metapoietic stem cells from our pluripotent populations. And it has to do in, according to this paper with the niche, right? If these precursors are traveling all over the body to be specified correctly, then perhaps we're not recapitulating that in the right way in our dish, right? And, but that's, that's the cool thing, this is perhaps providing that roadmap as to how we can improve our HSC production in vitro as well. Um, So I I guess I'll turn it around to you and ask you a question, since you're the HSC guru on this particular show. Why did it take until now for this to come out? Is it because of the technology? Is it because of the samples that are required for a, a study of this caliber? Why is this coming out now? What do you think?
0: Well yes, I think you said it right there. It's it's uh limitations on the availability of tissue and um also yeah, we've we've arrived at I think the culmination of our ability to examine heterogeneity within populations with single cell sequencing. And on that note, I will say that, that there's still a bit of a ways to go. They did use, and I mentioned, I think they use spatial transcriptomics to localize this. I don't know if you've worked with the spatial. I, I've done something with that, with the 10X chromium visium system. And it's amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong, the applications. But in their work, as well as my own experience, I note that the the resolution of the you know the beads, it's a 50 micron Uh, area that you can capture with each, you know, bead or or cell, as you would call it. Um, And 50 microns for me, looking at the ovary encompasses an entire group. It's entires a primordial follicle and all the associated cells. So we're not exactly at the level of single cell resolution with spatial. And I think similarly in this study, There's still some challenges in being able to resolve single hematopoietic cells within a 50 micron region. So, there's a little bit of a generalization that they need to do in their gene expression. But I can't wait for the next generation of these spatial transcriptomics technologies to arise because, for sure, they're going to move down that resolution to 10 or sub 10 micron um, beads. And I think that that's going to give us an even greater edge in, in all of our studies. But in this case, would allow us to really localize and define that niche um and and move this even further and and the short answer to your question arun i think less than the availability of tissue it's the tech man the tech just drives this stuff forward we see things every iteration a new tech we have to look at everything all
1: over again yeah i think that's probably the the right way to to answer that i think yeah like you alluded to. That's the, the other cool thing about this is because it seems like it can get even better, right? Mm-hmm. If your resolution can, can go down to the single cell level when it comes to these spatial transcriptomic studies, then perhaps we can figure out even more uh, unique markers and pathways that can utilize to make our HSCs better in in vitro right so i can't wait to, to talk to you about the next iteration of this story which perhaps is going to come down in the next few months who knows uh, but we're going to wrap things up with a another very high profile story in the roundup here today this is a science paper and this is also one of your favorite topics started sorry, sorry about stealing your thunder here dylan uh, the title here is functional primordial germ cell like cells from pluripotent stem cells in rats this is coming from a, of a number of japanese colleagues of yours i'm sure uh last author here is toshihira kobayashi first author is mami oikawa and also importantly on this paper is hiro Nakuchi from stanford who is known for his work in uh in chimera studies this is a a very big deal as i'm sure you would agree agree with uh this is uh Basically, the first time where researchers have been able to create healthy, fertile rats, rat offspring from sperm that are derived from rat pluripotent stem cells. Okay, so it seems like in addition to the mouse, where this is already kind of possible, deriving you know primordial germ cells, precursors of sperm and egg from ESCs, mouse ESCs, which is done like what ten years ago. Now it looks like the rat has joined that club. and this is uh, it's a it's a pretty simple study when it comes to at least the figures that are being presented here, but it's certainly a tremendous amount of work that's been going around going on in the last ten years to get to this point. Um, they're able to induce these you know primordial germ cell-like cells from rat pluripotent stem cells using a variety of different factors, and then you know ultimately I think the the real Beauty of the study is that these are functional. Okay, these are functional spermatids that are could, being derived from these rat pluripotent stem cells. They're able to do the knockout system, knockout, um, you know, germ cell and and gonadal development in in rats, and then rescue them with some of these uh, primordial germ cell-like cells derived from the pluripotent stem cells from rats, uh, and then those rats were able to have viable offspring. I think there was a caveat here that I don't think there was able to be natural mating with these particular animals. I think there still had to be some sort of assisted reproduction that happened uh, to actually produce the offspring, but still, you know, a landmark study because in addition to mice, now we can create uh, sperm from rat pluripotent stem cells. And ultimately it's coming down the road. You know, this is all working towards making it from human pluripotent stem cells. I think you're perhaps a little more pessimistic than I am when it comes to the reality of the situation, whether that's ever going to happen or anytime soon. I still think it is, but you're the expert here, right, Dylan? <laughs> I wouldn't say that.
0: I'm, I'm just an enthusiast. And my takeaway from this is just, just what we need in the world another way to make more rats. Um, right in the subway, <laughs> I would disagree. But the, in all seriousness, this is, I have been, I, I wouldn't say outspoken, but I'm on the record um saying that that I don't think it'll ever be safe to make uh human children from in vitro cultured pluripotent stem cell derived eggs or sperm um but who cares what I think this is amazing and also like forget about humans for a second it's really important even if, even if I don't think we should do it in humans, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't figure out how we could do it in humans, right? To have the capacity to have the tools and and putting that aside, um, just species preservation. I mean, the way we're going, we're we're blowing up all these animals to extinction. The white rhinos, northern white rhinos or southern, I can't remember the most recent example. And this is a real viable potential way to, I'm not talking Jurassic Park here, but make you know, newly extinct species to maybe reinvigorate them or to to support the revitalization of some near extinct species or already extinct species, even. So I mean, putting aside my qualms about the application in humans, I have to uh, pay pay my respects and kudos to this group because it, it is really a much more difficult process. The infrastructure isn't really there for mice, I mean, for rats the way it is for mice. Um, the reproductive biology is is different. The our our understanding of of rat pluripotent stem cells and the tools we have to uh, to manipulate them are scant by comparison. So uh, this is really a monumental piece of work, and I I I think this is we've reached a threshold now where we need to be encouraging researchers to be moving higher into monu- monoovulatory species um and and beyond uh well i don't know what's beyond that but just to to try and expand this application to other species to see
1: how how far up the ladder we can go yeah that's a great point i think the the human side of this is perhaps something we don't even have to touch on because like you said there's a huge application here for preservation and i remember we've been talking to Jean loring who was a guest on the show a while back remember she was making those uh, banks of iPSCs from different endangered species, like the white rhino, for example, and this is the the next step of that, right? If we can make those banks of iPSCs from different endangered species, this kind of work will help us figure out actually how to make the sperm and egg from those species, which is ultimately, yes, going to lead to new offspring and new members of that species and lead to better uh, conservation and preservation of that species. So, uh, so it's a beautiful piece of work. And I'm sure there's going to be other species, other animals, other mammals that are going to uh, follow. And <laughs> I think everything happens in the mouse first for a reason, right? But like you're alluding to, it's not always the best model of reproduction. And uh, this is one step towards making a, another better model of, of studying human reproduction, right? Yes. All,
0: all comes down to the humans. And I have to laugh because every time a, a story like this comes out, All the attendings uh, in my practice here, they get a ton of calls from patients saying, hey, they're doing it in rat now. Can you make sperm for my skin? So uh, then I have to field all that practice. But um, very important piece of work and a monumental impact to come. So we'll look forward to that now to talk about the liver with Dr. David Hay. But before we get to that, a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Are you looking to advance your liver research with organoids? The Hepatocult Organoid Kit can help you easily and efficiently establish, maintain, expand, and differentiate human liver organoids for your experiments. Organoids grown using the Hepatocult Organoid Kit are suitable for studying hepatic development, metabolism, regeneration, and disease, and are suitable for studying drug metabolism and drug-associated hepatotoxicity. Visit us online to learn more about cult at stemcell.com slash hepaticult, H-E-P-A-T-I-C-U-L-T. All right, everybody, today on the show, we have a special guest from the UK, Dr. David Hay, who is Chair of Tissue Engineering at the Center for Regenerative Medicine and the Institute for Regeneration and Repair at the University of Edinburgh, also founder of Stimuliver and Stemnovate, Dr. Hay's group is defining novel ways to produce liver tissue from pluripotent stem cells. They use in vitro derived tissue to better model human liver physiology and to develop supportive cell based therapies for disease. Dr. Hay, thank you so much for joining us today on the show.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Well, it really is certainly great to have you. My introduction there was a a bit cursory, uh, a bit threadbare, especially considering both the tremendous scope of unmet medical need uh, related to liver as well as your outstanding contribution to meeting that need. Why don't you start us off by briefly reviewing the devastating impact of liver disease globally and the major goals of your laboratory?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, liver disease is a devastating disease. Over 2 million people die annually from diseases associated with the liver. And, you know, the liver is a remarkable organ. It performs so many functions within the body. It has a high regenerative capacity. And those attributes are lost in the case of chronic disease, where you start to get healthy tissue replaced by scar tissue, which not only removes the the functional cells from the liver, but also distorts the architecture, which creates this problem where you can have some patients which progress and other patients which don't. But the ones which do progress, um, have incidences of um, liver decompensation where their organ doesn't work properly, which isn't consistent with normal health. And those can have other knock-on effects on other organs. But really, when you start getting to that end stage in the disease process, your treatment options are very limited. If you're too sick for a transplant, then your chances of survival uh, decrease dramatically because there are no other treatment options for the disease. So it is devastating. It affects people's quality and quantity of life.
0: Hmm. And what's the focus of your lab in trying to address that major on meat?
2: So what we're trying to do is generate renewable sources of human liver tissue, really so we can understand um, disease in a dish. So try and better understand the disease and maybe develop new medicines to treat that. Uh, and improve patient outcome but also trying to develop supportive modalities that we could generate liver tissue which could be deployed within the body to either promote regeneration of the host organ or support the host organ until a transplant becomes available or do both and that's really our goal is to try and give these patients that have no treatment option a treatment option
1: So the workhorse cell type that you've been using to actually generate some of this replacement liver tissue has, of course, been pluripotent stem cells. And you've been focused on the production of human hepatocytes from pluripotent stem cells for seems like more than a decade now. And it seems like like actually one of your biggest claims to fame was the development of this really efficient differentiation protocol to so actually go from human embryonic stem cells to functional hepatic endoderm through modulation of wind signaling published back in PNAS in 2008. Uh, and I'd like to think that differentiation approaches across the board, no matter kind of what cell type or tissue type you work in, have been streamlined over the last decade and a half in part because more folks around the world are actually using human pluripotent stem cells in their own tissue-specific research. And it's partly because of IPSCs, right, induced pluripotent stem cells. Everybody started to use these pretty usable, you know, accessible stem cell populations for their work. But when it comes to hepatocyte differentiation specifically, which is actually something we talked about with Matthew Sinton from your lab, you know, uh, Get us up to speed on the current state of the art. How robust is the differentiation protocol for hepatocyte production from pluripotent stem cells and how mature are these hepatocytes that we actually get at the end?
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. So there, there are a number of differentiation pr- uh, protocols uh, out there, which generate uh, efficient levels of hepatocyte like cells Um they employ different, as you were saying, different um, signalling factors, which promote the efficient differentiation and the, the and the maturation of these cell types in culture, and generates a product which has mixed abilities. I think it's fair to say that the cells display fetal and adult traits. Certainly, in our hands, we are able to demonstrate the metabolism of drugs that you would see in the adult. So, for example, the cytochrome P450s that are involved in prescription drug metabolism are active in our system, but they're also active in our system at a point where the cells are secreting a fetal protein, alpha fetal protein. So I I think the cells have mixed identity um, in the dish. Um, And we're currently working to try and understand that a little bit better. Is that mixed identity a cell specific trait or do you have different populations of cells in the dish? and part of the problem of working in two dimensions is the cell models that we create aren't um, long-lived enough to be able to mature substantially in the culture dish and this is why we've turned to three-dimensional differentiation and cell aggregation really to try and move past this instability in the culture dish to improve the maturation of these cells and ultimately their application whether it's in the lab or whether it's in the clinic
0: Yeah, and that's the thing, I mean, it's, we've made such great strides, and now we're dealing with kind of a whole different animal than we were considering when we first started working with pluripotent cells, and in the field, progress has been so rapid. Um, Every episode, we highlight some novel translational study that affirms and or underscores the tremendous clinical impact and potential of cell-based therapies, but I can remember, like Arun's alluding to there, back in, in 20, 2008, you know, when faithfully recapitulating the differentiation of a single specialized cell type, in your case the hepatocyte, was a huge deal. We couldn't get the kind of, I guess, coordinates, the molecular um, morphogen gradients correct, or we didn't have the recipe right to get exactly the right cell, but So it was big but now we're working at different scales different levels of complexity you got to integrate multiple cell types in an organoid or assembloid to get a paper out and we're constructing these biomimetic scaffolds to endow these in vitro kind of artifacts i guess you could call them with the structural elements that you see in biology um and i would venture here's the question i would venture that we generally Underestimated how tough it would be to reach the projected therapeutic endpoints, right? I think we all, not all of us, uh, myself, I can speak for, had this idea that let's get a cardiomyocyte, let's get a hepatocyte, and we can address heart disease, liver disease. Um, But clearly, it's a lot more complicated than that. What do you think? And what are maybe some of the underappreciated hurdles that remain to be bridged before we can really get to that therapeutic endpoint?
2: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great uh, question. I, I think the, the, the issue with being able to produce these high-quality cells has been probably the complexity of our differentiation approaches in the past. Before, we were using gel, We were using feeder layers. We were using fetal bovine serum you know, and all of these are, are, you know, um, um, susceptible to -to batch-to-batch variation and introduce complexities in in your cell culture system that makes it very difficult to get that reproducibility in the process. And that was one of the first things that we tried to do, working with um, defined signaling molecules, um, you know, using simple commercially available medias, um, reducing those to the minimum amount of levels that gave us the ability to produce our hepatocyte-like cells at about 90% purity, which was the real game changer for us. Before that, we've been in the, you know, zero to 20% yields mm. in our differentiation process. And, you know, the work done by Kevin DeMure, um looking at active Vinay, certainly with the endoderm was, you know, really important for us in the field to be able to make that, you know, highly pure population of endoderm that we could then further specify down the hepatocyte lineage. Mm. Um, I think, now we've got to that point, and you know, we've worked with industry to be able to produce stem cell differentiation media that allows us to flick the switches um, consistently in different cell types with different users at different densities. So I think we understand the kind of differentiation landscape much better now for a differentiation. I mean, I think going forward there's a limit to what we can do in two dimensions working with one cell type, I think we need to consider the other cell types that are in the the organ that we're interested in studying and certainly with us in the liver the incorporation of endothelial cells and stellate cells has been really important to generate a kind of phenotypically stable piece of liver tissue that has the capacity not only to perform metabolically in the dish but also to be able to model aspects of disease whether that be um, fatty liver disease, um, or whether that be um, cancer metastasis, you know, these are both really exciting avenues that we're exploring further now with our kind of defined pieces of liver tissue. And one of the key things that's got us to this point now, I suppose, is in the incorporation of automation too. And that really tells you how good your differentiation process is. If you if it is reproducible between users and you're 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 satisfied with it and it then is uh, suitable for use in a liquid handler and automatic pipetting systems that allow you to scale up, then that's that's fantastic. You, I think you've 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 really nailed it. Then we can use that high throughput system to understand what we have and what we don't have in the dish in a little bit more detail, and then start refining our approaches to differentiating the cells but always with that goal of having something that's chemically defined and something that's simple for the end user to perform to get the piece of liver tissue that they want to perform their experiments with or go clinical with
1: yeah i think reproducible differentiation is the foundation for everything we do it doesn't matter what tissue type or cell type you work in i'm a cardiac biologist so reproducible cardiac differentiation is really important to me and hepatocyte biology is the same way you know and i think having these chemically defined approaches has been really critical it allows for multiple people across the field to actually jump in and also it gives us an eye towards the clinical and gmp grade manufacturing which is what we're hoping to get towards down the road and now that we've actually been able to make cell types like hepatocytes reproducibly and in a chemically defined fashion, we can really have more of an eye towards the applications, which is the exciting part, right? So when it comes to utilizing pluripotent stem cell-derived hepatocytes, whether it's 2D differentiation or 3D differentiation-based approaches that you use to actually make these things, it seems like there's three big applications. And I think this is kind of the case for a lot of different tissue types as well. I think cardiac is the same way, you know, disease modeling, drug screening, and clinical transplantation, right? And certainly, there's been a lot of progress that's been made on each of those applications, modeling different types of liver disorders, like what you were talking about, uh, identifying potentially hepatotoxic drugs in preclinical settings. This is a big problem with drug development, you know. Um, and certainly, using stem cell derived hepatocytes for transplantation purposes and for clinical therapeutic purposes to actually restore liver function. I mean, in your opinion, and this is probably this is probably going to be a tough question, but in your opinion, probably what's been the most promising of these applications is it the the preclinical side of things the identification of toxic drugs using these hepatocytes you know these stem cell derived hepatocytes is it the disease modeling that's been really promising or is it really the the clinical facing applications of using these cells for therapeutic applications what have you been the most excited about
2: I think initially we were, you know, we like the rest of the field were very excited about this potential to combine our stem cell based models with genome editing and disease mutations to try and understand and cure disease better in the dish and try and take that towards a clinic. And I think that's really exciting. I think there's so, so much more mileage in the in vitro modelling side of things, uh, you know, where I think we're, t- we're kind of limited by our imagination now. Right. We've got to be able to do something that's scientific and worthwhile, but I think we've got many tools at our disposal. Um, More recently, the clinical side has has really um, excited me. And I think, you know, there have been a number of nice papers out there where people have been able to transplant cells and support liver function. Um, in in compromised recipients, and that's great. Um, I think you know what got us really fired up was this ability to be able to put a bit of liver tissue underneath the skin and support the host organ from a remote site. And you know, maybe for some patients who are or for patients who are very sick, this might be their only treatment option. They may not survive general anesthesia. Um, At that point in their body, the blood's probably not going into the liver, it's probably shunting around the liver, um, which means that you probably wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to put liver tissue into that diseased organ because it's not going to be properly perfused and the cells are going to die in response to the necrotic environment. So I think, yeah, to sum up, I think definitely the in vitro side is really exciting. There's going to be a lot of good stuff coming. This is a really solid pipeline. But the in vivo side now is starting to develop, and that's you know probably been our focus in the last few years is to try and get these implantable modalities to treat failing liver function.
0: Yeah, I like the way you put that, that. The in vitro side has gotten a lot of mileage. We've gotten a lot of mileage because that's, I don't want to call it low-hanging fruit because the work is tremendously complex, but we've been able to glean some really important insights already clinically um, mm. using pluripotent stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells and, and CRISPR and all these things. So. It's already reaped some rewards, but as we all know, the uh, the holy grail here is clinical treatment using cell based therapies. It's what we promised to the public, with all these you know public facing funding mechanisms. Um, and you alluded to it earlier. I, I think one of the the really important elements to bring that into fruition, um, and that you've worked on presumably in service to your overarching goals, is automation. Right, the incorporation of automation into diffs uh for therapeutic application it's a no-brainer but my question to you is how deep do you expect this to go i mean we just talked a couple episodes ago about this deterministic or i don't know what you want to call it ai adjacent method for cell selection and sorting um and the idea there is that the 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 machine is looking at the cells and deciding which ones based, based on whatever criteria in this case morphological criteria um and ai is already being applied in my space reproductive medicine for embryo tracking and selection so this is already in the clinical space and in the case of pluripotent cells you know these cell differentiations they can be nuanced and and often dependent on i mean you alluded to earlier about how there were all these complexities with the fbs and the matrigel and and you've made tremendous efforts to cleaning up that system but still there's some kind of Nuance and vagaries of differentiation, and, and sometimes a, a effective diff is, is dependent on, or at least can benefit from the judgment of a committed trainee uh, overseeing them, RPI, whoever it is. Um, so this is the question. I mean, when, when it comes to automation, how far do you think we're going to go with this? Are we talking to like HAL level I.A, you know, from 2001? Are we talking about humans that are running relatively dumb machines?
2: Good question. Um, so I I think the likes of AI, machine learning are very important. As long as you've got the data sets to train the, you know, and, and produce the correct algorithm that's going to be able to, you know, streamline your process. I mean, my dream is to go in on a Monday, push the green button, and then come back two weeks later, and I've got liver spheres at the other end. You know, that allows me to go and do the exciting science and maybe not a lot of the laborious work. Um, I see AI could be a very important part of that setup. For me, it would all be about streamlining the process, but in terms of making it simpler, right? Getting rid of additives that are not required. Um, What are the minimal components that we need to make a piece of liver tissue? That works very well for the in vitro side of things, but also for the in vivo side. When you start working with regulators and physicians, they want to know they want the paper trail that goes with that piece of liver tissue to, you know, not only justify its quality, but also its suitability and safety for long term deployment within the body. Um, So, yeah, I see this as a very important part. I'm no expert in AI or machine learning, but it would be a component of uh, my ideal system if I could design that robot to be able to produce liver tissue.
1: Yeah, that regulatory point is actually, I think, a really good one, and it's not something that we think about a lot, especially when it comes to GMP-grade production of cells for cell therapy. It'd be really great for the regu- you know the regulatory agencies to be able to track your cell products, and having an automation-based approach it really allows you to perhaps track them a little bit more efficiently as opposed to having different technicians who may have slightly different approaches in terms of making their cells, you know, there, there's more variability when humans are put into the picture, right? So perhaps from a regulatory standpoint, that's, that's attractive to automate all these cell production uh, based approaches. And really, I mean, like what you're talking about, the end game is the clinical translation. And this is something that you're really excited about, like what you've alluded to. And so we actually wanted to bring up a company that you've actually founded and are the CEO of this is stimuliber. Uh, stimuliver, It's where you're taking basic stem cell derived hepatocytes, you know, then stem cell derived hepatocyte cultures, and uh, you're implanting them into people to perhaps treat clinically failing liver function. Uh, And this is, of course, in human trials. And um, that's the, the downstream hope is to put these in people. For livers approach, you're actually taking organoids, right? You're taking these 3D liver organoids and placing them under the skin, like what you're alluding to, to help restore patients' reduced liver function in cases of liver failure. So tell us actually more about this startup and where the company is right now in terms of this timeline to ultimately bring these clinical therapies to people.
2: Yeah, so the, the, the work was initially done in the laboratory in 2018. Um, we were, were able to prove the concept that we could put liver tissue... so cells uh, underneath the skin and support the host, host organ in an animal model of uh, tyrosanemia type one. So in a disease situation. Um, since then, we, uh, we applied to the Bioinnovation uh, Institute's Venture Lab program, and we were funded to, to start up Stimuliver. Um, and our goal really is to take this procedure that we've developed, produce hepatocyte-like cells, produce endothelial cells, allow them to self-aggregate in microwells, scale out that process initially, and then um, add those uh, liver spheres to um, implantable um, devices. So in our case, it would be a a non-woven polycaprolactone fiber. So allow those cells, uh, those spheres, to attach to the surface of that, then put them underneath the skin and study the supportive value of these spheres. And uh, also their safety long-term is paramount. So where we are in the process now is the company's established, we have our RAs working on the differentiation, and we just secured a a grant actually last week from uh, the Danish Innovation Fund to be able to automate the process within the company as we move forward to our preclinical safety uh, testing. And the goal really is to you know to create high quality liver tissue that we want to study. It's safe you know its safety profile and also its supportive profile. Going forward, we will obviously, as we've discussed, want to be going into the clinic if this is safe and appropriate to do so, um, targeting acute on chronic liver failure initially, uh, trying to provide those patients with an option where other treatment options are uh, don't currently
0: exist. I mean, this is so great. I I love doing this show. I mean, I I exist in the world, so I would benefit from all these therapies anyway, but being here, just having run the arc of talking about them like science fiction, and then listening to you tell me that you're funded, you're really on the cusp of making it happen. It's just so exciting. I mean, it's an exciting time, not just for everybody who could benefit from the treatment, but it's really exciting for the, the stem cell biologists, especially those who are part of the efforts to bring cells into the clinic but all of us i think it's really tremendously gratifying to see that this choice we've made and this commitment we made to the field is actually bearing fruit but you know bring it actually to the clinic is a gargantuan effort and some might say it lacks the romance i guess of the small working group sharing this aha moment at the microscope or i looking at a novel data set i mean it's a bit of a slog right so is it is it tough to move between these two worlds for you? I mean, you kind of need a different mindset. And and here's a question, do you you have to cultivate a a different sort of leadership in that setting? And do you think there's different types of scientists or trainees or RAs, as you call call them, that thrive in that setting relative to a more basic uh, uh, research setting? What do you think about those?
2: yeah I agree the two different mindsets one's more kind of lateral thought process and the other one's very focused on developing this defined product you know and you're developing your target product profile and then moving that towards a you know a clinical trial securing the investment to be able to do that interacting with regulators I mean one thing that's been I think it's very important you know, as you develop this commercially is to build structure within the company and you get people who wanna work in those particular areas that that's their interest. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the RAs we've got are really fired up at the moment. They see this as an important um, challenge to treat liver disease and, and take forward the work we've done in the lab and, and try and produce something which is gonna impact positively on human health. That That's been great. I mean, for me, I like both environments. I like the lateral thought process. I like to be able to find new things out. I like to go through data sets, crunch data, have debate about things. And then the true acid test is, if you want to translate that, is the science good enough? Mm. And I think that's what we've really focused on recently is, you know, reproducing what we've done in the lab in different pairs of hands, using different cell lines, and yeah we're all really fired up about taking this to the next level which is a pre-clinical validated approach that the regulators like and allow us to move into clinical trials
1: You're living the dream and it kind of seems like you're representing a new breed of translational stem cell biologists, because in addition to being an amazing basic scientist and having over 15 years of pluripotent stem cell biology experience, you know, it seems like you've always had this eye towards bringing these technologies towards the clinic and developing products right through startup companies. Stimuliver is one example. You also started and worked on other companies, just Stemnovate, which is focusing more on drug sc- drug screening, I believe. Um, Um, So tell us a little bit more about this passion about founding biotech startup companies, how you actually manage to balance your academic commitments seems like you're a pretty busy guy. And also, maybe if you could wrap things up by telling us some advice and giving us some advice for the new generation of stem cell entrepreneurs, I'm sure a number of whom are actually listening to the show, who might want to follow in your footsteps.
2: Well, I, th- I think it's, it's been great to work with great people. So Rishi Sharma, who's the CEO of um, StemNive and Dagmara, who's the CSO of Stimuliver, it's, it's working with the right people, people with a shared vision. And, you know, they work equally as hard as I do um, on these different projects. And I think we make a great team. Teamworks, everything. I mean, regenerative medicine if you if you're creating an in vitro model or an in vivo system that you you know you want to or, or treat people in vivo, it's about combining these different um, what what would you say different um, different characters, different capabilities, different disciplines, and then trying to mix that all together in a kind of defined recipe to produce something at the end which is useful. Whether that be a microfluidic device that allows you to predict. Uh, liver biology in response to to drugs or new treatments or to viruses, um, or create new di- diagnostics, or whether you want to create this implantable piece of liver tissue, or maybe other tissues. For example, going forward, tissues for the heart, like a bandage you could use, or or encapsulating cells that you can put in other parts of the body to treat certain deficiency states. I think it's all about team building. It's having the right people on board that share a common vision. And and this work is hard, as you said, this isn't like a, a walk in the park. This is a good number of years of team effort. And I think we all gain a lot of experience as we go through this. You know, nothing is ever the finished article. It's like when you publish a paper in science, you know, you finish that paper with a full stop, but that's just the pause before the next paper comes on. And I think that's pretty much in the corporate world, it's exactly the same, it's about developing the process, hitting your milestones, securing more investment, and then moving this forward to an end product that's going to be useful. Um, I would say to people out there, it's whether it's academic science or whether it's uh, industrial science, it's hard, right? And you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to see that kind of goal at the end. And you've just got to accept things aren't going to go away a lot of the time. You just have to pick yourself up, get on with it, um, and it's, it's a bit like the peer review process, isn't it? Nothing's nothing's easy there too. So it's all about determination and, um, you know, believing in yourself and in your team and creating a positive environment for all those people to flourish.
0: Yeah, that's uh, great words of advice. And I, I love how you underscore the team. It's not just in entrepreneurial efforts or in commercialization translation of these, these therapies. It's really anything in stem cell science nowadays. Gone are the days of the... The sole operator, you know, it, it's all about building a strong team and uh, cultivating all these different specialities that you need to to reach uh, your endpoint. So uh, I, I just want to, again, emphasize that the team um, and congratulate you on the teams that you've been able to put together. They're, they're really pushing the needle. Before we let you go, though, we got a couple of science peripheral questions. Uh, you know, you're doing a lot of things, Dr. Hay. But uh, the first question here is the thing that you didn't do. What's one hobby that you always wanted to pursue but haven't been able to due to the tremendous demands on your time and effort?
2: Well, I would say it's probably drawing or painting. I would love to be able to do that. And I'm not so sure if it's a time restriction. I think it's unfortunately my abilities are really limited in, in this in this respect. I think my kids from quite a young age could certainly draw and paint much better than I could. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's my that's my abilities are limited there.
0: Well, as someone who similarly has very very I, I would say uh, weak a weak talent at uh, artistry and drawing, I, I like to think that. Science is so artistic, and I get—I really get my jollies out of taking these beautiful micrographs. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to create, but maybe it's no lesser thing to observe. So I think we're all artists as scientists. Finally, I got a few fill in the blanks for you. Uh, first is, when I am not conducting research, I am? Uh, going
2: out with my friends,
0: uh, taxi driver to
2: my kids, <laughs> um, or or working out. Not necessarily in that order.
0: <laughs> well, those are all positive. Um, no vice for this guy. Second, if I could have one superpower, it would be? Oh, being
2: able to breathe underwater. I think there's so much of the planet we haven't explored yet, which, uh, uh, yeah, that would be my dream. I'd love to do that.
0: Aquaman. I love it. I haven't thought of that one. You know, I'm still like with the total banal infantile wish to fly but i guess uh, i'll never grow up finally i can't start the day without oh that one's simple tea and
2: coffee Hmm. (laughs) probably coffee and tea actually (laughs) in that order is that
0: how it goes in the uk it's not i thought it was all about tea but now you're doubling down huh the tea plus the coffee what's that about
2: just gets me through the morning
0: (laughs) gotta get your dose i found your advice dr hay but it's not enough to take you away from saving our livers i'll tell you what it's not even noon here during this interview but i'm gonna go have a drink because i'm counting on you to make it all better (laughs) on the back end i really appreciate your time and your effort david thank you so much for joining us today
2: thank you very much it's been great to be on the show thanks for asking
0: all right. That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks you guys for joining us for this, I would say bombshell roundup episode followed by a really enlightening and fascinating interview. Um, Join us again in a couple of weeks and we'll have something fresh for you. Thanks for listening.